God's promises were that he would be with us and the promise that he would send someone to be with us. And it just made me think of this part of Revelation um, 21. It says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Just that promise that as good as the presence of God is now to us, there is something coming that is so wonderful. As, as that song, um, There's a Fountain Filled with Blood, that there's a day when the church is going to be completely ransomed, saved to sin no more. So I'm just so, so looking forward to that day, because that is where glory is. That's not what I'm preaching on, though, so it made me think about it. Um, I'm going to preach out of Colossians this morning. Uh, this is a sermon that I've given in part a couple of times, but not exactly the same. Something that um, when I first preached it, I was surprised to be preaching on it, just because I was intending to preach out of Colossians 1 on Paul's prayer. We were going through a series back at a different church on prayers in the Bible and how does that teach us how to pray. As I was studying, the Lord grabbed a hold of me with verses 3 through 5 on the thanksgiving of Paul before he even prayed or part of his prayer and that attitude of thanksgiving for the believers there in Colossians. And he particularly convicted me about my attitude at that time towards the, the church where I was going, full of wonderful believers, but not one where I was particularly thankful I wasn't disliking anyone, mostly just apathetic or just, um, but, but definitely not actively and heartfeltly thankful. So it's been something that the Lord has worked into me, and it's such a joy and a privilege, and it's so prevalent throughout the New Testament and the epistles of Paul that I thought it would be good for us to study. It's something that's been impactful for me, and I hope it's helpful and encouraging to you all. Uh, before we begin, let's pray and commit this time to the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the worship of preaching your word, of hearing your word, of singing to you the truth from your word. You are, Lord, so wonderful and so good to us. We, we come to your word knowing that it's beyond us, and yet in your condescension we can understand it and live it out. We thank you that you've revealed yourself to us. Lord, we, we need your help, though. I need your help to say words that are right and true and helpful and wise. And each one in this building needs help to hear your word through whatever I'm saying and to apply it to our lives, to live it out, to be lights shining in a dark world. So please, Lord, be with us in this time. Move in our hearts and help, help us during this time. Shape us more and more into the image of Christ individually and, and collectively representing Christ as a body. We ask this for your glory in our lives and in this church. And in Jesus' name, amen. So if you're not already open to Colossians, please turn to Colossians 1, and we're going to begin by reading verses 3 through 12. 
Colossians 1, starting in verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Verse 3, we always thank God when we pray for you. Do you make a habit of regularly thanking God for the believers in your life, when you pray for them or just in general? Or perhaps more specifically, when was the last time you gave specific thanks to God for another believer? We could ask about this church here. Do you regularly give thanks to God for the believers here in this church? If you do, why and what are you giving thanks for? And if you don't, why not? As we see in this letter of Paul and so many others, Thankfulness for other believers is the norm, the expectation, rather than the exception. So let's jump in straight away to three things that Paul lists as reasons for giving thanks. Because oftentimes, I think our reasons for giving thanks can be wrong or or shallow. First thing that Paul gives thanks for is faith. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. The first thing which produced thanksgiving in the apostle was hearing about the faith of the Colossian believers. Now, for context, Paul, as far as we know, never went to Colossae before writing this letter. It was likely that Epaphras or some other believers heard his ministry likely in Ephesus, which was somewhat nearby, and went home and then either planted a church or multiple people gathered there, And through the ministry of Paul elsewhere, or perhaps others, a church was planted in Colossae. But then some troubles arose in that town, in the church, some disagreements, doctrinal, false teachers. And so Epaphras comes to visit Paul in his prison, saying, Paul, there's a church, we're having issues, can you help? Simultaneously, a slave of a man who likely lived in Colossae, Philemon, he's the man who owned the slave, came and found Paul, or the Lord brought them together, and Paul had met this slave, and he had become a believer. We, it's possible, it's most likely, that Philemon was a believer in the Colossian church, given the names and almost identically listed at the end of both books. So Paul, having not met this church, suddenly gets a visitor, 
And the visitor says, Paul, the Lord has planted a church. There are people who have faith in Colossae. And Paul's response is to immediately begin giving thanks. This is Paul's mindset. When he hears of people who have believed, a new church that has been planted, there's rejoicing, there's thanksgiving, that's praise, there's praise. We, we know that, right? That's not foreign to us. When we hear the testimony of someone standing up and saying, the Lord saved me, when they give their testimony as they prepare to be baptized, there's rejoicing, there's thanksgiving. Um, when we hear of the Lord doing a work through a missionary in foreign countries, uh, the Lord has saved you know, five people. The Lord is starting to build and plant a church out of people who had, who had not known anything about Christ before. There's rejoicing, there's thanksgiving that immediately springs up, or it should, in our heart. It's natural. This is also not unique to the Colossians. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 1, 15 through 16. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So this is not only applicable to people whose faith we're hearing about for the first time, but Ephesus was a place where Paul labored for years. And still, regularly, as he prayed for them, he gave thanks for their faith. So it's not just the first time we hear about someone's faith, but the, the reality that someone has faith at all. Every time we think of them, that's what he says to the Philippians, every time I remember you, I thank God for you. For Philemon, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. The reality is the regenerating work that God has done in any of our hearts is sufficient cause for thanksgiving. We, and it's easy to think of that when we think of ourselves, right? If we think about what God has done for me, we're thankful. Lord, thank you for saving me. But that applies to each other as well. Seeing what God has done to, to pull them from darkness into his light. That they're delivered from that domain of darkness. That they're transferred into the kingdom of his light, as Paul writes later in Colossians 1. That they've been made a new creation. For, for each believer that we know, and even the ones that we don't know, the old has passed away, and the new has come for them. They are a brother or a sister to you, and a joint heir with Christ. For them, their sins are completely washed away. Just like for us, they have the spotless robes of Christ's righteousness. The Holy Spirit indwells them. He leads them. He is convicting them of sin and growing them. They have been adopted into the family of God. God himself rejoices over them and smiles at them in favor and in love. He pursued this person with an everlasting love to bring them in all of their struggles and rebellion to change them and bring them into his family. This is how God views them. This is the reality of what's gone on in their life. This is worthy of eternal thanksgiving. We can look at any person in this room who is a believer, and we could spend eternity just praising God for what he has done in that person. This is, this is not even about the person. It's not even about what they've done. Like so many times we get caught up in thanking God for what a person may have done for us recently. But where Paul starts is on the immutable work of God. Not any performance or any recent or even the strong or weak relationship he has with that person, but the work of God which cannot change. 
You read that Ephesians 2, the only reason someone could ever have faith is if God says, believe, and works in their heart to put that faith in them. No one musters up faith. No one got close enough. No one, was, no one of us was closer than anyone else to faith. All of us were entirely dead. Any faith that we see is the result of God sovereignly reaching into our dead hearts and saying, live. Of God looking into our blind eyes and saying, see. Of God taking our hardened hearts, their hardened hearts of stone and rebellion and utter treason against God and softening that to repent, to, to long for the Lord. Of saying to our darkened mind that, was confused and didn't see any sense in Christ and saying, believe and understand, and suddenly the lights came on. It is the work of God that is the first foundation of our thanksgiving. And this is freeing because it means that for, for Christians that we don't know, for Christians that are struggle, we struggle to have relationships with, it's not dependent on each other's performance. We can look at any believer anywhere at any time and because of the absolute miraculous work of God, we can thank God for them. This, this gets convicting and hard, though. What about those believers you don't know very well? It's hard to pray for them, hard to thank God for them. Not here. What about the believers who are very different from you, or you have a disagreement on this thing or that thing? Do you thank God for them? Can you thank God for them? What about a believer who's offended you, someone who's hurt you, and yet you know they're a believer? Maybe they haven't repented to you yet. Maybe they haven't come to the realization under conviction of their sin. Can you still thank God for that believer? Not because they're perfect, but because they're redeemed, because God has done something in their life which cannot be undone and which is absolutely glorious. If God welcomes them, rejoices over them, can we hold back our thanksgiving over them as well? Surely not. This is where Paul begins. It's the work of God producing faith. The salvation that God has worked is sufficient cause for faith. But he does go on. He does go on. Number two, he says, because of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. This is also common. This is not the only time he gives thanks for love. In Ephesians 1, again, he says, Because I, I, I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Philemon, because I hear of your love and the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus for all the saints. And to the Thessalonians, the second Thessalonians 1, We ought always to give thanks to you, to God, for you, brothers, as is right. Because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. And here's another opportunity for us to jump right back on our performance horse. And we want to look at, how has this believer loved me recently? Do I feel the love from this believer? Do I really feel like we're in a great, strong, loving relationship? But I, I think if we focus there, we're missing something far deeper and, and richer. I want to give you three thoughts about the reality of love among the believers, which ought to, to, to spark our thanksgiving. First, the origin of this love. How is it that the Colossians are loving each other? How is it that any of us 
loves each other. Was it something that we mustered up? No. Again, this was God's work in us. Romans 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians, even as he was praying, he says, not only for the first time, but even throughout our sanctification, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. And then 1 John 4, one of the very essential fruits of salvation, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So when Paul hears the testimony of Epaphras, it says it right there in verse 8, that Epaphras specifically mentioned the love the Colossians had for each other. Paul knows this is a true church. God is at work here. It's another, it's a, as you might say, the first evidence of salvation, the primary proof that God is at work in the hearts. It's again the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit in believers, not just to make them new, but to live out that new life. Again, it's not the performance of believers, it's God's work. Second, consider the strangeness of this love. It's testified in the, in the scriptures as well as all throughout any kind of history that you would read. Christians were not the people you wanted to love. There was no benefit in that. 1 John 3 says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. The world hated Christians. Now, we don't get this in middle America most often. But the Jews hated Christians for leaving Judaism. The Gentiles thought Christians were just a weird sect of Jews and eventually hated them for not worshiping the emperor. Jesus himself said about that. He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. To love someone for being a Christian was strange. It was weird. The world had no affection or affinity or even much respect for those who followed the way, who followed this Jesus fellow. They were mocked for believing in the resurrection. They were ridiculed and thrown out of synagogues for believing Jesus was the Messiah. In Paul's day, it was a shame, a dishonor to be a follower of the Christian way. He himself was writing this from prison because of preaching Jesus. Not only that, but even aside from the strangeness of believing in this Jesus fellow, Christianity primarily was a lower-class religion. There wasn't like you could associate with the rich and famous by joining this super-secret club called Christianity. No, if you went to a Christian church, you were likely to interact with slaves and day laborers and women who were not respected at that time. But this was the church. So for, for a group of people to say, we love each other because we belong to Jesus, because we identify as followers of Christ, was strange. It wasn't common. So for this to be the testimony about the Colossians is another proof that God is at work, that a real work of grace has happened in this city, in this group of people. It isn't just a fluke, but there is something deep and true going on that God has done. Thirdly, consider the uniqueness of this love. Not just the uniqueness of someone loving a Christian for being a Christian, but think about who made up this group that was loving each other. We see this in our world today. 
There's divisions and conflicts and controversies and hatred among every dividing line that you could think of, from skin color to age to job to socioeconomic status to, to whether you have a disability or not. Any, anything that makes us different, we find a way to fight over. And this is not unique to 21st century America. If anything, it was worse back in, in, in the day of Paul. A Pharisees would pray this every morning. You probably have heard this. I thank you, God, that I'm a Jew and not a Gentile, that I'm a man and not a woman, that I'm a free man and not a slave. That is how deep-rooted that the most religious people would, would say, I'm so glad I'm not this person who's different than me. As a Jew, you just did not have Gentile friends. You didn't go eat in their houses. You didn't hang out. As a Roman, you would never associate with a a barbarian or a Scythian, someone who is from the outskirts of society, and probably never with a Jew either because they were also really weird. As a free person, you would, you would never hang out with a slave or a, or, a, or a day laborer who was basically an indentured servant. That just did not happen. And Paul says in, in Colossians 3, here in the church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free but Christ is all and in all. The testimony of the Colossian church that people who were so different, who never would have even hung out together, who never would have had cordiality together, are now loving each other. They're serving each other. People, as Paul puts it in Ephesians, who were far off with a dividing wall between them, Christ has broken down that dividing wall, and now they are near the divided groups have been made one. And the vibrant proof of this is their love for each other, testified by Epaphras. Who could create such love, such a strange, unique love? The testimony of these Colossians is that they were living out the words of Jesus in John 13. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This love for each other is something to thank God for. It's something supernatural. This is something we've experienced even in our own body, that just to love each other does not happen easily. To really love each other, to, to serve each other, to be sacrificially in each other's lives, caring for each other, is a product of the work of the Spirit of God. So, where we see it happening, we should thank God. And this, again, comes with some conviction. What about that person who you see expressing love for other believers in the church, but you guys aren't close? You see them expressing love, but you've never been privileged to be on their good side. I'm not going to deal with the issue of favoritism, but is that a genuine love that they're expressing? If so, even if you haven't been the direct recipient of it, you can thank God for that. If it's a selfish love, that's... That's dealt with in Corinthians and other places. But, but if it's a genuine love, even if there's no benefit to you, that is worthy of thanking God for because that is supernaturally created and empowered and grown by the Holy Spirit. Here's a harder one, personally at least. You go out on campus, you go out to the grocery store, and you meet someone from a known shallow church, shall we say. They really don't hold the same theological convictions that we are, but they're not over the line into heresy and apostasy. 
And they express so much joy in the fellowship and love that they're feeling at that church. Is your first response, praise God, I am so glad for the love and fellowship in that body of people. Or is your first response, eh, I'm really skeptical because they don't line up with me on everything. Like, th- this is something we have to really get in ourselves. It's not that we want to approve doctrinal disclarity or unclarity or, or wrong doctrine. But we want to thank God wherever he is at work. And wherever there is true love between true believers, God is present. He is there working. And that is something we can thank God for. So, first, faith. Second, love. Lastly, hope. And you see a progression. You see Paul moving in a, in a couple of ways. First, the faith, the salvation, regeneration, birth into the family of God. The beginning of God's work, we might say. You see love. This is the primary fruit of sanctification, or primary proof of regeneration. It's renewal. This is life in the family of God. And it's the evidence of God's saving work. And it's the ongoing work of God now. And here we have the final third one. Hope. This is glorification. The hope laid up for you in heaven, he says in verse 5. Glorification. This is the resurrection. This is our inheritance in the family of God. It is the finished work of God. Yet again, Paul's thanksgiving relies foremost, primarily, squarely, on the work of God, the promises of God. This is not a hope that we cling to as if our clinging makes it true. This is not a hope that we have earned or a hope that our efforts secure for us. The only reason we have hope is because it is based on the promises of God. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5 puts it this way. This is beautiful. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. He's the one that caused us to be born again. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How secure is our hope? It's as sure as the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The hope is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. The hope that we have is being kept by God in heaven for you. But it doesn't end there. He says, you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Just as that hope is being preserved, protected, guarded by God for you, you are being protected, preserved, and guarded by God for that hope, for that inheritance. All of this rests on the finished work of Christ, the promises of God that he will not lie, that he will complete the work that he has begun in you. Paul's thanksgiving for the Colossians goes as far as eternity itself, that no matter what troubles they would go through, no matter what doctrinal fights they were going through and and, and occurring in the body, no matter what false teachers would try to do to lead them astray, no matter what persecutions would come their way in the coming decades or centuries, 
that there was, for all true believers in that church, a hope laid up in heaven that would not pass away. No matter what they went through, this was sure. This was secure. There is a hope laid up for them in heaven. He writes this in Romans 8, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This, this is the sure hope laid up for us in heaven. There can be no separation, no doubt that this is for us. And so think about this then, not just for ourselves, but for other believers. Think about the other believers in your life. What are they going through? But, but there's a hope laid up for them in heaven. What are they struggling with? It'll all be made new one day. Can you thank God on their behalf for them? Think, think about the believer. This is someone in whom the work of God will be perfected. Do you see sin in their lives? That can be true. You can be offended and see sin in their lives, but you can also thank God because one day they will be spotless. They will be perfect. All of that will be gone. 1 John 3. This is, this is for every believer that you know. This is God's promise. You can thank God for this. When, when he appears, they will be like him because they will see Jesus as he is. Revelation 21. This is again the promise of God. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have all passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Revelation 22, There will no longer be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. This is the future for those Colossian believers. Paul sees it. He knows it. This is the reality that he sees when he looks at their, at their lives. Consider each other. Who would have thought, not only of your own life, but of their lives, that the Lord could make such a beautiful thing out of them? Who could have thought they would be turned into a perfectly pure vessel called holiness to the Lord, with the Lord's name written on them? Can you imagine it? One day, I don't know if we'll recognize each other or how space is going to work in heaven, but can you imagine one day you and them will be in the presence of God together, worshiping flawlessly without that, the doubt, without the, the worldliness, without all the things that bind us here, the sin, the distractions. All of that will be gone for them and for you. You're going to be with them. Oh, and they will be glorious. Not as glorious as the Lamb, but there is a glory for us too. This, this is the purpose of God for them. This is something we're thanking God for because it's not just what they hope to be, but this is God's intention for them. This is sure. The person, the person who used to hate God in this room is now longing for that day with you. 
they will see God face to face and they will worship him and they will love him. What a glorious future. This is worthy of worship and praise to God on each other's behalf. So this this is the content of our thanksgiving. It's God's work. Yes, we thank God for what each other do. Like when, when someone is blessing you or expressing their love to you, we thank God for that. But that's not the foundation. And that's not the, the norm. That's above and beyond, we might say. The normal expectation is that day in, day out, we have a heart full of thanksgiving because of the work of God in each other's lives, past, present, and future. So let me give you a couple of observations from the text, maybe helping in practical application as we close. First, Thanksgiving takes place in the context of prayer here, and so many other times. And this is helpful. You might think, how often am I supposed to thank God for somebody? Well, how, how often do you pray for them? So people who are closest to us probably pray for a lot, which means we ought to be thanking God for them commensurately. People who we rarely run into, maybe a stranger that we meet on the street that we find out is a believer and you have that chance providential uh, interaction, maybe you thank God for them, but they're not part of a regular part of your prayer life, so you don't have to feel a burden that you have to you know, meet this certain standard. But this is what Paul says. We always thank God when we pray for you. As an aside, let me tell you how hard it is to be upset with someone that you are thanking God for and praying for his blessing on. If you, on a regular basis for someone, are looking at what God has done in their life and expressing that thanks and praying, as I hope to do in another sermon soon, for God's spiritual blessings on their life, it's really hard to hold a grudge. You can't be praying for God's blessings honestly and honestly thanking God for his work and perfection that is going to be accomplished in them and be angry. It is vital. It is important. It is helpful. Thanksgiving does take place in the context of prayer. Second, Thanksgiving is for all believers. Paul is giving thanks for Colossians, people he's never met. He's giving thanks for Philemon, an individual believer. He's giving thanks for the Thessalonians and the Ephesians, who he spent years or months laboring in, laboring alongside of, people he does know. And so, again, the people that we know best and are praying for often may take up the majority of our thanksgiving. But this can apply to our missionaries and, and churches overseas. We think about the believers in Nigeria. When we pray for them, it is right, even though we don't know any of them, to give thanks. Lord, we are so thankful that you've worked salvation in these people's lives. We are thankful for the future that they have, no matter what struggles they're going through now. When we think of believers overseas, people that we know, people that we don't know, churches around this town, churches that we fellowship with in other parts of Missouri or, or down in Texas or wherever, you know churches that are good and solid. You see faithful believers. You see love among the saints. You know the Lord is bringing them to heaven. You can thank God for them. You can even thank God for that random person you meet on the street that you meet and you're like, I think that was a believer based on our conversation. I have confidence. Praise God. We thank them for that. We thank God for that. It's not just certain people. It's not just the super believers. It's all believers that we can thank God for. Third, thanksgiving should be our heartfelt attitude. This is maybe a repetition of what we've already said, but you get this almost this scene where Paul's sitting in prison and however it happens, Epaphras comes into the cell or the waiting room or something and he says, Paul, 
There's a church in, in Colossae now. Paul's immediate response, praise the Lord. Thank God for that. He says to the Philippians, I thank my God in every remembrance of you. Every time he thought of them, every time he remembered the Philippians, his heartfelt emotion, his response was thankfulness to God. Now this is, brings up something I mentioned about my own self at the beginning. That is often not a dislike or a hatred of each other that is our main enemy to thankfulness. The primary enemy I often face, and probably a lot of us, is more of a passivity, a disconnect, just something that we don't often pray for each other, we don't often think of each other, a coldness or an apathy. This is as dangerous to our love to each other and to our thankfulness for each other as any type of dislike or strife or anger. Lastly, thanksgiving is cultivated by a heavenly mindedness. This is what we've been seeing all throughout, as I mentioned, what we should thank God for. If you think about someone, first and foremost, like the world does, this is how tall they are, this is their gender, this is their skin color, this is their political ideologies, this is how they live their life, this is their job. There's so many opportunities to be passive or apathetic or even just have no interest in thanking God for them. If you think about them primarily about what they've done for us, there's not may not be much to thank God for. But when our lens, our view shifts to thinking about them primarily spiritually, primarily how God views them as a redeemed sinner, as a saint headed for glory, this is what shifts us from being apathetic to overflowing like Paul did with thanksgiving. Because we're seeing things properly now. It's not about them. It's about God. God is doing amazing things with them and in them and for them. He has done amazing things for them. And he's going to do yet one more amazing thing that we know for sure. He's going to bring them to glory. To each other, no matter what else happens, our first identity is this. We are in Christ. Brothers and sisters to each other. You see someone walking through trials. You see beyond just the hardships and the circumstances. And you see God at work in that person's life pruning them, shaping them, weaning them away from the world, making them into the image of his son. That is glorious. You can thank God for that. When you see someone walking in victory, you see that this is, Lord willing, by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is God. When you see someone who is newly saved, when you see someone approaching the end of their days, ready to go to heaven, this is God at work. And this is what Paul writes later in Colossians 3, but then he also writes it in Ephesians, this idea, don't see each other primarily as the world see each other. He says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So, to be thankful, we, we must remember what God has done in us, what he is doing in us, and what he will do in us for all of eternity. May the Lord help us to shift our mindset from from the normal worldly ways of thinking that can infect us and distract us to be refined and transformed, renewed by by his spirit through his word and how we think about each other may help us to, to increase and abound in our thanksgiving for each other. Let's pray. Father, we... We thank you for the believers in this church and we're in awe of your work that 
sitting in this room are so many miracles. Or people who should not be alive but are living. People who should not be seeing spiritually, who should be dead. But you've reached into our hearts and said, live. So many miracles of grace. So many people walking by faith. Lord, and so many people who will be gathered around the throne, worshiping for all of eternity in awe of your beauty and your glory. Lord Jesus, you are worthy of all of our praise and thanksgiving. It's not just in this room, but throughout history and around the world, there are thousands and millions of people who you have saved out of darkness into light. We thank you for your work, for your glory. You help us, Lord, to thank, be thankful for each other, to look at each other spiritually. Lord, grow us in our love for each other as well. Help us to be a city set on a hill, shining with the light of Christ for others to see. Amen.